from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you, uh, Surgeon General, Stuart Memorial Trustees, uh, colleagues, a very, very warm welcome to the 50th annual Stuart Memorial Lecture, a golden anniversary, airspace medicine, golden opportunities. I can't quite believe this is the 50th annual lecture, but I'm absolutely privileged to be introducing this this evening. I cannot think of a better person to give our lecture this evening than uh, Professor David Gradwell, and and I'm delighted to see so many of you here uh, filling this hall, so thank you very much indeed for attending. The first Stuart Memorial Lecture was given 50 years ago at the Royal Aeronautical Society. Over the ensuing half century, these eponymous lectures have charted the development of aerospace medicine through the eyes of those who have, through their lectures, commemorated the life and work of Air Vice Marshal Bill Stewart. Many of those lecturers whether from the UK or overseas, have worked at the RAF, former RAF Institute of Aviation Medicine or its successor, the RAF Centre of Aviation Medicine, where I work. This golden anniversary offers the opportunity to highlight some of the key challenges and developments in the science and medicine of this unique specialty, as well as a glimpse into what the future may hold for aviation and for the aeromedical scientists and physicians that support it. Throughout the lecture, you will hear much about the life and work of Air Vice Marshal Bill Stewart. But uh, I would like to just take a moment to mention that we have here his son, Callum Stewart, in the front row, and the next generation, Finlay Stewart, his grandson, also in the front row. With Callum tonight are Air Vice Marshal Clive Evans, Uh, who had a distinguished flying career in the RAF, and Roger Earls, who is CEO of many companies and is an ardent supporter of military charities. Uh, Air Vice Marshal Evans, Roger Earls and Finlay and Callum, we're delighted you're with us this evening. Thank you very much indeed. And so, to our lecturer. Professor David Gradwell is the Emeritus Professor of Aerospace Medicine at King's College London. He's had a career in aviation and aerospace medicine of more than 35 years, the greater part of which he served in the Royal Air Force Medical Services. Much of his early work was at the Institute of Aviation Medicine in altitude physiology and protection against the adverse effects of the hostile environment of very high altitude. He has been deeply involved in the teaching of aviation medicine former the RAF Centre of Aviation Medicine and at King's College, and the development of a robust medical specialist training programme for the 21st century. David is also the senior editor of the internationally recognised standard textbook, Ernstein's Aviation and Space Medicine. He's president-elect of the International Academy of Aviation and Space Medicine, chair of the specialty committee at the Joint Royal Colleges of Physicians, and a past president of the Airspace Medical Association. David is also a long-standing colleague of mine. I can't think of anyone better placed to give this 50th anniversary lecture 
David, we're looking very much forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much indeed. David, thank you very much. Um, fellow trustees, air officers, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues, um, thank you very much indeed for coming along this evening. Um, it's a great privilege to be asked to give the Stuart Lecture, um, and indeed um, I'm actually exercising that privilege for the second time, slightly to my surprise, um, uh, for I gave this lecture in 1999. At that time, uh, aviation medicine in the UK and in the Royal Air Force had gone through a very difficult period. But now, I believe, there are huge opportunities and a transformation of the recognition of the importance of aviation medicine in both military and civilian world here in the UK and around the world. But before we discuss that further, I'd like to, first of all, uh, have a word of acknowledgement to these organisations and individuals who have helped me in the preparation um, of this lecture. Um, and I won't go through them all individually, but like uh, uh, David, I'd like to particularly thank Callum for um, the generosity of opening up the family archives and some of the treasures held within there that I'm going to use today. And the first of those is this picture of Bill Stewart, um, and he is sitting on the ground looking um, actually slightly more relaxed than I might be. He is about to be plucked from the ground by a passing aircraft to test the system for recovering secret agents from occupied Europe during the Second World War. Um, I would suggest you don't try this at home. Um, but um, an interesting, challenging technique which highlighted the view um, then and continues now that the practitioners of aviation medicine have to put uh, themselves on the line from time to time to test the things they've been working on. And Bill Stewart very much set that in part. But this is a golden anniversary, and so I thought I would look back with you at 1969, 50 years ago. A very significant year in aviation altogether. It was the year of the first flight of Concorde, the Anglo-French program that's really been the only successful supersonic transport aircraft that came into service and served with the national airlines the, of the UK and France. And to get it into that situation required a considerable degree of aeromotive expertise. Flying at twice the speed of sound and altitudes between 55 and 60,000 feet, it was necessary to work out how to provide cabin pressurization and what to do in the event of it failing. That's why it had smaller doors and smaller windows, why there was a positive pressure breathing system for the flight deck, not for the passengers, um, but also even in its development, um, all sorts of things had to be done, such as working out how the development crew could escape from the aircraft if it got into difficulties when it was um, carrying out the development flying it was called for. So very much ahead of its time, and we'll see more perhaps about supersonic transportation later. And, of course, the 50th anniversary of man's first walking on the moon with the Apollo 11 program. Now, there have been uh, many um, programs on TV and radio about the whole Apollo program, but it's 50 years since man first took a step on another planet of the solar system. But there are others. Now, I've got a list here of anniversaries from 1969. The star prize goes to those who, in the audience here who can identify what they all refer to. 
Dr. Jones is laughing. He obviously thinks What are they? Well, let's start with the top. 9th of February, the first flight of the Boeing 747. An interesting uh, observation that the 747 and Concorde took their first flights in the same year. Two entirely different concepts about commercial flying. Uh, Boeing very nearly lost its um, financial shirt uh, in issues with the engines when it was first being developed. And in fact, they were not quite so sure that mass transport would win over fast transport. And in the design of it, the flight deck, as you will see and know, is up high. And if it didn't uh, work as a transport aircraft, they were going to chop the nose off, put a hinge on it and turn it into a freighter. History recounts that things have happened rather differently since then. And the Daily Mail air race. Remember that? In 1913, the Daily Mail sponsored a prize for the first uh, aviators who would fly across the Atlantic. The First World War interrupted, but in 1919, Alcock and Brown um, made that first journey. uh, And it was that that the Daily Mail was commemorating 50 years later by establishing an air race. Won by the Royal Navy. Um, and specifically, in, in this context, there was a Flight Lieutenant Goddard who did it from the top of the Empire State Building to the top of the GPO Tower in 5 hours and 11 minutes, with multiple in-flight refueling of the Phantom aircraft involved. Um, the, and they flew the same direction as Orcock and Brown from west to east. Fasted subsonic was the Harrier seen here taking off from a coal yard near St Pancras Station uh, and flying, of course, direct and taking advantage of its capabilities to land vertically. So, what about the other events? Well, here's a list. I won't go through them all, but an interesting thing. Harriers were particularly in the press because the first operational Harrier squadron uh, was formed on the 1st of July that year. Of course, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walking on the moon but also other things. The first time there had been a scheduled service right across the Pacific with TWA. Nimrod entered service, as some of you know. I live in Cornwall. I was at St. Morgan the other day. Um, And also the Apollo 12 mission, which doesn't get a lot of press. It was after 11 and before 13, of course. One thing at the bottom, every month in uh, in, in 1969, there was a hijacking somewhere in the world of a commercial aircraft. Interesting, those aren't now. But the other milestone, and the one we're here to commemorate tonight, is the first uh, of the Stuart Memorial Lectures, given by Major General uh, Harry Armstrong, had retired as USAF Surgeon uh, General. Harry Armstrong is uh, well known and commemorated in the Armstrong Line, the point in the atmosphere where um, body fluids turn to vapour at normal body temperature. Again, don't try it at home. Um, He took as his theme uh, Anglo-American military aviation, and I'll come back to that cooperation later on. And, of course, those lectures have been set up by the trust that was formed to commemorate the work of Bill Stewart and to promote research and education. Um, Some of the recipients of the Stewart Memorial Prize for the Diabmed course uh, are probably here in this room, and, of course, our annual lecture. But let's turn back even a little bit further. Flight in the UK um, with Sam Cody's flight um, in 1908 at Laughlin's Plain uh, near Farnborough. 
Um, and he was trying to interest the army in aeroplanes. They weren't particularly interested at that point, but by the time of the First World War, um, things had grown in, in terms of interest. And indeed, um, throughout the First World War, there was a recognition of the uh, importance of aviation medicine. The initial selection of pilots was not perhaps the greatest. They had a tr tremendous um, attrition rate. Um, they were selected basically on their capacity as horsemen, point I'll come back to again uh, later. After the First World War, there was a period of retrenchment in aviation medicine in the UK and in the US. But, of course, the Royal Air Force had been formed by 1918, and by the run-up to the Second World War, it was recognised that it needed to be expanded, as indeed was fleet air arm, and that uh, aeromedical knowledge to support the aviators was increasingly recognised as being of importance. I think well, the Flying Personnel Research Committee was set up, which was going to oversee and report on a lot of research. The consultant medical services were expanded, um, and the gentleman photographed here on the right is, is Harold uh, Whittingham, later uh, Sir Harold Whittingham, who through much of the Second World War was the Director General of the RAF Medical Services. But he was also instrumental in the move to Farnborough of the Royal Air Force Physiological Laboratory, which had somewhat been itinerant in the preceding years. And he'd also been closely involved in what was the old CME, Central Medical Establishment at Kelvin House, uh, long since closed. Um, this is a copy of a book, actually, that was in uh, Harold Whittingham's uh, collection. Now, you may know that uh, there are some associations here with another textbook of aviation medicine, and those who really know the books may think that Fundamentals of Aviation Medicine refers to an American textbook. This one's not. It's Russian. It's a translation of a Russian one. And the Russians view that aviation medicine was of such operational importance, military aviation medicine was of such operational importance, that it was, had to be made confidential. And in fact, that's what you see up here. And these are numbered copies because it was of such importance. Um, they may still have that view. But the lab, I've mentioned, came to Farnborough having been uh, itinerant and set up the RAF Physiological Laboratory with a recognition that the main themes of its going, uh, work was going to be in altitude protection, um, in investigating why aircrew blacked out, uh, and then many other sub areas were added. And to lead it, there was a man brought from Cambridge, Brian Matthews, Professor Brian Matthews, later knighted for his work in physiology, who had been in the department in Cambridge and was seconded to the run and, and head of the laboratory at Farnborough. And did and really got in, uh, the team there engaged in developing oxygen systems such as the economizer. Some here in this room may remember the Jet Provost. Well, the Jet Provost still, at least the Jet Provost 3, um, had um, the economizer still in use. Um, right up to the 1990s in service aircraft, but it had been developed at the beginning of the Second World War. Investigations of decompression illness and hypoxia, a thing we'll come back to, and looking into the effects of G and how one might protect against it, and issues related to sea survival. And these are shown here. There's the economizer diagram. These are quite iconic and well-known pictures of Bill Stewart being rendered unconscious in the spinning a fairy battle, not a high-performance aircraft, but put into a spin deliberately, and Bill Con uh, Stewart being uh, rendered unconscious, G-induced loss of consciousness, even in a relatively low-performance aircraft. And this is work on sea survival, mentioned about Edward Paskin in a moment, and look how few the staff were in those days. 
It started here at a shed, basically, next to number three building of the RAE, um, and yet it was the working home of Brian Matthews, I've spoken uh, for a time, um, uh, uh, Alan Hodgkin, who went on to get the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine, and indeed become president of the um, Royal Society, and Bill Stewart too. The importance of the work they did was recognised early on, and the lab had a visit from... Um, the King, George VI, in 1940. By 1942, a few more sheds, um, and uh, note the oxygen systems outside. <laughs> Health and safety possibly not quite at the same state it, uh, it, it is now. And the kind of equipment that they're doing, uh, were building was uh, helmets. Initially, of course, these were helmets were for thermal protection rather than impact protection, um, and perhaps that's rather the case here goggles and mask. Um, and they had unusual tasks suddenly dropped upon them, including the day that Winston Churchill came to visit because he was going to be flying the following day in a Liberator at 24,000 feet from London to Moscow. And so they were training him in aviation medicine and in the use of this mask, which he called a muzzle. He wasn't impressed, wasn't happy, made things quite grumpy, I understand, and so they had to modify it for his purposes to allow him to smoke his cigars through. <laughs> Again, please don't try it at home. But for don't try it at home things, this one's got to be one of the winners. This is Edgar Pasque. He had been recruited into the Royal Air Force and um, he'd been an anaesthetist before the war um, and recruited and was carrying out work in training uh, aircrew uh, in hypoxia in a decompression chamber. But he got interested in the fact that, that we were losing downed aircrew in the sea and so started to devote a lot of time and interest in developing techniques to support them and recognised that an unconscious airman would actually behave differently in, when dropped into water from a conscious one. So he had himself anaesthetised and thrown into a pool. The first time he did it was without any flotation device and the result is you sink. His colleagues pulled him out um, and recovered him. And thereafter, he was repeatedly thrown into the pool, anaesthetised, but wearing different forms of flotation jacket, including the mechanism to self-right from somebody that went in the water face down. At the end of the war, Edgar Pasque was offered um, a career in the Royal Air Force to stay at the RAF um, uh, Institute as it had become uh, at the princely sum of £500 a year actually left and became the second professor of, of anaesthetics in the UK. But one person that didn't leave was Bill Stewart. And he became commandant and did so much to build up aviation medicine at, the, at Farnborough and in the Institute and the links between aviation medicine in the UK and around the world. Uh, Bill Stewart was born in Scotland. Um, his father was a GP... And he went to a um, school in Scotland and then to a Scottish medical school. All the best of us do. Um, but by 1939, um, he was an MRC research fellow in uh, Cambridge, working in physiology there. But in the, as, get close, as closer and closer to war, he joined the RAF Volunteer Reserve. In fact, he remained in the RAF VR throughout the war and only transferred into the regulars after the war was over. He was initially uh, posted to a balloon unit um, where he wasn't required to do much in terms of medicine. There was a broken ankle, um, one case of a 
gentle urinary condition he treated, uh, but not really taxiing so much. Uh, but Brian Matthews, um, with uh, Harold Whittingham's connivance, um, realised that the place to send him was to the physiological laboratory at Farnborough, and that is indeed what happened. Uh, and his research interests then and in the post-war years were extremely wide. So altitude protection, G protection, um, crashworthiness, hot and cold environments, fatigue, escape from aircraft, and disorientation. A very personal association with escape from aircraft. During the early years of the war, going out work on oxygen systems, um, he actually was in a B-17, um, RAF-operated B-17, before the Americans had joined the war. Um, but it flew into icing and um, got into trouble, broke up in the air, and he was the only survivor of the accident. Some of you may remember Group Captain Tony Barwood, who worked at Farnborough. Tony Barwood would have been on that flight if Bill Stewart had not replaced him on it, and Tony Barwood ever afterwards thought that his life had been saved because he wouldn't have had the experience to affect his escape in the same way. So, as I say, he stayed at Farnborough and built up the institute and brought new skills to it, including psychology and human factors, facilities, chambers, and the initial chamber used was an REE one, but then more chambers, a centrifuge, more in a moment, and aircraft. Um, and, as I say, many awards um, for, for Bill Stewart, but including an Air Force Cross for his um, uh, uh, flying exploits during the war. Um, and, of course, an untimely death uh, in 1967. Here's a picture of the IAM at Farnborough as it came to be um, with um, the old centrifuge building in the middle here. Uh, the uh, F-49 had a chamber in it, climatic. I know Dr. Sowood's in the audience, so there you are, Pete. That's one for you. Um, and um, the West Wing, where we used to have the um, high-performance hyperbaric chamber. It's now a housing estate. Um, but it did have tremendous capability. But to understand what aviation medicine is, I thought what you might like to do is actually hear from Bill Stewart himself. This is a photograph of a BBC interview that Bill Stewart uh, gave uh, with uh, Freddie Latham. And if the technology works... In the past, we have been concerned with such limitations as the prevention of injuries in ditching or crash landing. In cooperation with the Royal Aircraft Establishment, we had carried out trials with different forms of seats and safety harnesses on human subjects seated on a trolley and propelled by rockets along a form of railway track. We found that the higher loads of 15 to 18 times the force of gravity, or as we would perhaps call it, 15 to 18 G, were best tolerated when sitting facing backwards, and these trials resulted in the installation of backward-facing seats in Royal Air Force transport aircraft. In civil life, this has only been followed by an Australian airline. The steadily increasing performance of aircraft has required many investigations of human reactions, either in actual flight or in simulated conditions in centrifuges or decompression chambers. The pressurization of aircraft cabins is an example of the use of data gathered from the many classical studies of the effects of oxygen lack at altitudes above 8,000 feet. In civil aircraft, then, this is the maximum permissible aircraft cabin altitude from physiological reasons. But in order to avoid pain in the ears of a travelling public, we find that the rate of change of pressure in the cabin should be limited to perhaps about a pound per square inch per minute. 
When flying at higher altitudes, the outside air temperature is very low, about minus 55 degrees centigrade, and the air is completely dry so that the air of the cabin of the aircraft must be controlled within limits of 68 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and the relative humidity must not fall below 25%, otherwise the passengers will have very disagreeable dying of eyes and mucous membranes of their mouths or throats. That would do perfectly well for a lecture to the diploma course right now. Um, of opening facilities, it's amazing who have come along, and this was the opening of the centrifuge at Farnborough in 1955. Uh, Bill Stewart on the left in the picture, and the man in the middle is a man called Lord Thurzo, otherwise known as Sir Archibald Sinclair, who had been Secretary of State for Air through, from 1940 to 1945, all the way through the Battle of Britain and the years that followed. And it was interesting to see his commitment to um, the Air Force and to the facilities that were needed there. Not that it was necessarily easy to get a centrifuge at Farnborough then. Many of you will have had any personal experience of riding on this centrifuge, not necessarily the most popular piece of equipment, um, even when it's going round and round. And you may remember, of course, that you were, when you were riding on there, simply a passenger. Uh, but nonetheless, it did sterling service from 1955 for many decades thereafter. At £350,000, it seems like a bargain, although some people obviously objected to the price at that time, and there was a suggestion that why should we not use an American facility um, rather than spending that money here in the UK. Um, but I think we've learned that lesson several times over. Of course, G... There we are. Uh, can be approached by different means. This is a prone meteor um, where um, the pilot controls were replicated for somebody lying prone in the nose. The aircraft itself um, is at the RF Museum in Cosford. Um, but the obvious problem was whilst you might be able to fly the aircraft in that position, you couldn't escape from it very easily. And escape from aircraft has been a regular theme in aviation medicine over the decades. This is not an IAM aircraft. It's actually the aircraft of Martin Baker uh, Aircraft Company that they use as a flying testbed and an individual coming out in, um, of the back of the aircraft on a test ejection of one of their seats. And here, in fact, um, is the gentleman who was uh, the commandant at IAM when I first went there. This is uh, Peter Howard, later Air Vice Marshal Peter Howard, who had volunteered to be the first ejectee on a rocket-assisted seat um, in, in, in a test procedure carried out with the Martin Baker aircraft. Uh, Peter uh, died some years ago, um, but just out of interest, he didn't like heights. Um, I don't think he was smoked by the time I met him at Farnborough, um, but uh, interesting how things change on. Royal visits to Farnborough, of course, continued. Here's Pete, um, Prince Philip uh, coming to uh, Farnborough, uh, and with, of course, a considerable interest in aviation. And that flying link has been enduring. Many of you may remember the Hunter T-7s, but you may not know a couple of the things for which it was particularly unusual. It was the aircraft in which the first airborne test of pressure breathing for G was carried out, and it was also the first UK-based aircraft to be equipped with a molecular sea of oxygen concentrator system generating um, breathing gas for the pilot from the air through which it's flying. And the transatlantic link mentioned at the very start with, with um, uh, Armstrong, 
But there's been strong links between the IAM and there remain strong links between CAM with the United States Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine, formerly at San Antonio in Texas, and now at Wright-Patterson in Ohio. And there have been exchange officers, teaching exchange, which still continues, research, research shared, and um, also Stuart lecturers who've come here Two of the most notable in recent years, Major General Tom Travis, uh, many of us know, who uh, was indeed a pilot physician on exchange um, with the Royal Air Force at Farnborough, um, but then went on, uh, went on and up in the United States Air Force to become their Surgeon General. And Jim Vanderplug, uh, Medical Director of Virgin Galactic, uh, who gave this lecture a couple of years ago. This was the kind of thing produced by Farnborough. Um, a series of reports published in not particularly eye-catching um, form, but nonetheless, this one I'll point out to you from um, the late Professor David Dennison when he was a flight lieutenant at Farnborough, and it's actually on the fire risks to, to man of high oxygen environments, oxygen-rich environments. And, of course, the, one of the most dramatic demonstrations was this tragedy um, on the um, launch pad uh, in Florida with a test of what became known as Apollo 1 and three uh, Apollo astronauts were killed in the ensuing fire. They couldn't get out. There were problems with the hatch when the fire took place in a high oxygen environment. I would just point out the date at the bottom left of that one. That unfortunately lessons, you know, have sometimes could be difficult. But now I'm going to move on to CAM. Um, Established in um, 1998 by the amalgamation of the Aviation Medicine Training Unit at, at North Luffenham, by what remained of Aviation Medicine Research uh, at, at Farnborough brought together, and uh, the unit actually stood up in December of 1998, officially opened a couple of years later, as a lodger unit at RAF Henlow. Medical boards came in 2000 to form much of the unit as it is today, although there is, of course, the clinical unit that has augmented it since. And to many here, it remains the aviation medicine home. And that includes those who've never served a day in uniform, but for whom that, that site and that location and that source of advice and assistance is important. And the motto, Utsiko Valent, that they may fly safely, was inherited from the one that existed for IEM at Farnborough. And here we are. Um, um, that's Henlow, roughly as it, rema uh, as it remains today. Um, with the site there. But the other thing is its aircraft. It still managed to sustain that link to having aircraft to test things in the air or to treat people um, for various conditions. And in fact, an awful lot of work was done in this aircraft to provide support for the introduction of Eurofighter Typhoon. Two PhDs on altitude uh, and G were used to help specify the altitude and G life support systems, but a lot of the equipment was actually test flown um, in the, uh, in the uh, RAF CAM, uh, and before that, uh, Sam Hawk aircraft operated at Boscombe Down. And that policy continues now as we move with new aircraft still. And the aircraft itself, this is a Sopworth PUP, rather rudimentary in terms of instrumentation and switches, so, First World War vintage, Second World War vintage. This is a Spitfire cockpit, and notice a lot more dials and switches, but also rudimentary method of providing some degree of protection against G, because there are two sets of rudder pedals. You could bring your feet up onto the higher ones to, uh, to some degree, offset the effect of G. Even in um, science fiction, 
the need to have a human being in the cockpit has been recognised. Some of you here are old enough to remember the first Star Wars movie from which this is a screenshot. And you may remember that when they, in these um, craft, attacked the Death Star, the pilots were aided by a targeting system that dropped down in front of their face. Any of you remember it? Well, nothing changes. Here we go. Except it's not something that drops down in front of the head of the pilot, but now worn on the, on the helmet, in this instance, of a, of a pilot uh, flying a typhoon. To provide information to the pilot presented on the v, uh, visor, um, and in fact, uh, targeting information goes well back to Jaguar days and has become much more sophisticated since. Or you can move into the F-35, where you have a wide, uh, flat-screen um, display uh, in front of you, big TV, and a side-stick controller now for G purposes. But in fact, the helmet is the mechanism by which you can fly and fight the aircraft without a cockpit display uh, if necessary. That's essentially what's in the cockpit, is a reversionary system. Um, but you can look through the instrumentation that's displayed on your visor to the outside world beyond. But now the infantry is moving on. So we've said goodbye to the tutor in the Royal Air Force, and then they're getting the prefect. Goodbye to the Tucano, and getting the Texan. Uh, big files. Goodbye to the Hercules, uh, not yet, but getting there, and the A400M Atlas coming in. And, in fact, I mentioned Nimrod. Of course, there's been a gap, but in due course in the near future, Poseidon will come in to provide anti-submarine capability uh, in the Royal Air Force again. Big pictures don't want to move on. There we go. Now, stealth. (laughs) But before we talk about stealth, I just point out something else to you as well. This pilot is getting into his aircraft from the left-hand side. Do you remember I said all the way back at the beginning that there was a, the selection of pilots was interesting in the First World War? People who rode horses well, a good seat, a good pair of hands. And, of course, you climb onto a horse from the left-hand side. It's still there now. And, in fact, when any of you get onto your 777 or 747, you will board through a door on the left-hand side. Strange how these things rattle down the years. But stealth, well, for the, the RAF and the Royal Navy, of course, that means the F-35 coming into service now, first squadron, 617 squadron, of course, the Dambusters, um, but bringing uh, an interesting capability, not without its challenges, perhaps, but bringing a considerable amount of capability. And, of course, for the Navy, it means that um, fixed-wing air power on big carriers is being reintroduced. But the aeromedical challenges in these new infantry continue, and that's whether it's hypoxia, pressure breathing, acceleration, or escape from the aircraft. Those challenges remain, and they require aeromedical input from the young doctors and scientists of today as much as it required that of the war years and the years that followed it. Of course, you could say, well, we'll take the human out of the aircraft altogether and we'll operate drones. And this is indeed an RAF armed drone, but in fact, there are a number of issues that have arisen with those. Um, And if you look around the world, 
keeping the human brain uh, in the battle space has remained uh, crucially important. But drones may have their role. But drones have to be operated. And drone operators have to understand airmanship and the environment in which the aircraft that they may be operating remotely still has to uh, be flown. And here is one RF-1 training. But they've got screens, and that will give them information. And, of course, that kind of information won't lie to them. They won't have to worry about uh, misinterpretation, will they? Well, we're going to try an experiment. Some of you may have seen this before, but go with it if you would. So on the right-hand side here, you can see a blank page. But on the left-hand side, you can see a negative image of a young lady. I'd like you to stare at that young lady. I'd like you to stare at the spot at the end of her nose. I want you to stare as hard as possible at the spot at the end of her nose. Now look at the right-hand page. That page is blank, but you've seen something there. So I would like now to move to the golden opportunities that we've uh, got. A new inventory uh, but other thing for the military, but other things are going on as well. There's formal recognition for training for full-time practitioners and also increasingly for part-time practitioners in aviation and space medicine as well. There's a recognition of a requirement for specialist input to patients and for the teaching of doctors and, and scientists has required a new legal framework, a training program and a curriculum. The recognition of aeromedical aspects to normal life more than half the world's population are passengers on an aircraft each year. So it's everybody's business, and it's every medical business, because uh, I was down in the surgery in, in Port Scatho in Cornwall uh, a week or so ago, talking, giving a talk to the GPs there, and they, in a tiny little spot in rural Cornwall, get people saying, am I fit to fly? Da -da -da -da. So it's everybody's business. In due course, perhaps there will be an academic home um, within a medical royal college for doctors, scientists, nurses, psychologists, all to work in the field of, of aerospace medicine together. For the deep specialist, this is an outline of the training pathway. Um, it's a long time since I went to see the, uh, the chairman of COPMED, which is the, um, the um, committee for postgraduate deans, to ask for a lead dean to help us set this up. But it's essentially a similar... Um, you could take this model and overlay it on any other medical specialty and with it becomes the ability to complete a program which will get you onto the specialist register in aviation and space medicine and we hope that early next year the first one that will have completed that program comes off the production line. So in military aviation in 2019 a huge amount of new investment, um, increased training of specialists and the military activity continues at a pace. And I'm grateful to Commandant Glockland for these numbers from the first nine months of this year. At CAM, uh, almost 1,400 aircrew trained in aviation medicine, 512 high G training, support to 16 operations and exercises around the globe, over 1,200 patients uh, for aeromedical purposes, and there's RAF medical service personnel deployed worldwide as well as the reports, the kind of thing that we looked at uh, a little while ago. And this is one of those facilities. Now at um, uh, Cranwell, a new centrifuge. Now you're not a passenger, you get to fly it. Um, Three, two, one, now. 
and it spins up much faster and slows down much faster. Now, of course, the doctor doesn't have to sit in the middle but sits in the control room and it cost a bit more than £350,000. But looking to the future, CAM will move by 2023 to Cranwell. Um, a new site's been identified, not exactly adjoining the centrifuge, but certainly co-located with it. So the um, location of that home um, will be sustained and back next to an airfield and lots of other advantages too. And why? Because there are new aircraft coming down the pipeline. In the 50s, Duncan Sands' white papers said that the Lightning would be the last manned combat aircraft. Well, this is the next. This is Tempest. In this instance, an artist's impression of it flying over London. You may be aware that Typhoon came over London a few nights ago, made a bit of a noise. Uh, this one, I suspect, may have some time before that happens with this aircraft. But notice it's a manned, human-occupied aircraft coming into service. But there will be many changes with it. And the interface, now the cockpit, is, can essentially be blank. Uh, and I'm just going to show you um, some, this is a, a video produced by British, um, given to me by British Aerospace, the systems. Um, and stay with it to the end, uh, because there's a medical aspect as we get there. In the future, we envisage a software reconfigurable wearable cockpit where there are no hard displays in the cockpit, thus increasing the flexibility to cope with different missions, tasks, and even pilot preferences. It will allow us to increase the responsiveness as the cockpit will be easily upgradable when new technology is introduced or when the customer operational requirements change. This flexibility and adaptability aids affordability whilst enhancing capability. We use the Striker 2 colour helmet technology demonstrated here in the Vive to create the large area displays, but it also allows us to augment the outside world. For example, in this demonstration we have overlaid unclassified and simplified missile engagement zones onto the outside world. Whereas traditionally the pilot would be presented with this information in a two-dimensional format on the head-down displays and then have to work out how this relates to the outside world, we can now present the information augmented in the outside world and enhance the operator's situation awareness. This is an example of a multimodal cockpit. Most likely, it will still retain physical, hands-on throttle and stick inputs, but it will also provide the pilot with other ways of interacting. Essentially, we are aiming to create an intuitive and easy-to-use cockpit out of complex, adaptable and clever technology reducing the training burden and increasing the usability and the pilot performance output. The eye tracker allows the system to prioritise the information where you're looking. In this demonstration, wherever you look at a track or a target, more information will pop up. So not as to overload the displays or distract the operator, but provide the right information at the right time. Using the eye tracker, we can also drag and drop the displays. Because we're using virtual portals, we're not limited to how big a display can fit in the cockpit. Everything becomes potential display space. Traditional dead cockpit space is now usable, and the operator can set it up for a particular mission, task, or their personal preferences. Due to the multimodal nature of the cockpit, 
The display moving task, for example, can be carried out using gesture control, such as the wand and the grab, and the displays can be stored in a wearable tile store on the left hand. Also on the left hand we have a virtual watch to demonstrate the potential of psychophysiological monitoring. By understanding the physical and mental state of the operator, the system can provide adaptive human autonomy teaming, stepping in when the pilot is mentally overloaded or physically incapacitated. What a difference. Many of you may have learnt to drive on a basic uh, car with four forward gears, no sat-nav, no voice control, and how much busier the vehicles are that we drive now. Well, that is the same effect multiplied many times over. But notice that even in this very high-tech uh, demonstration of the aircraft's fighting capability, there is still the expectation that there's going to be a requirement to build an aeromedical interface between the occupant of the aircraft uh, and the, the airframe itself and to assist in that regard. So exciting times ahead in this regard. But I'd just like to say as this has principally been about military aviation medicine because of the history of the Stuart um, lecture. But I believe that civilian aerospace medicine is increasingly being recognised for the true importance it has. Sometimes this is spurred by tragic events. It did, uh, with this uh, accident in Staines, bring in a, the requirement for aviation cardiology. And German Wings has really focused once more the attention on the need for aerospace mental health interaction. There's an increasing role and responsibilities for aviation medical examiners. And the European Aviation Safety Agency is requiring enhanced training for AMEs. Now, if you wish to be an AME, you have to be on the specialist register, either in primary care or in the secondary care specialty. And as well as the crew, the, as I mentioned earlier, the travelling public numbers are now huge and continuing to, to rise. And fitness becomes an issue and is not necessarily particularly well understood uh, by the passengers, the patients themselves. There are new aircraft coming in, uh, and there's indeed new in-flight medical support, so in many aircraft now there is a mechanism to get in-flight medical advice um, from an emergency room somewhere or, uh, in the world. There's still the debate about the cabin altitudes. Concorde was 6,000 feet, most have been 8,000 feet, but we're going back to seeing aircraft with a 6,000 foot cabin altitude. And sector length, well, this is one example that does too. This is the Boeing 787 with the Dreamliner, which has indeed a maximum cabin altitude of 6,000 feet, but being used here in test flights for uh, operating from London to Sydney direct, and they've also done New York to Sydney direct, 19 hours, 19 minutes of just over 11,000 miles without setting down anywhere, and considering what the aeromedical challenges are for the crew and the passengers on board. Here's a map. I trust, of the route uh, that that aircraft took. Um, they hope, Qantas hope, that this will be a premium route and people will pay a lot more to save a couple of hours or so on the route. And this one. The spotters will know this is the X-59. This is the Quest program. This is, and Quest stands for Quiet Supersonic Transport. NASA is investigating if they can develop an aircraft by virtue of its aerodynamics and operation that can fly across land masses without laying a sonic boom. I used to hear the Concorde one living in Cornwall uh, when it decelerated on its, on its arrival uh, from New York. 
but uh, NASA is looking at whether there's a mechanism by which this can be uh, developed so that once more uh, we may see supersonic passenger transportation coming in. And if that isn't far out enough, what about this? Flying your aircraft without handling the, the throttle and stick at all, but by having a device that picks up your brainwaves and you think about flying it, and that links to the operation of the aircraft. Um, I've quoted a paper here from Experimental Neurology. Um, these have been, the testing here was flying a drone and flying a simulator, but there have actually been experiments carried out in a light aircraft in flight where its controls were operated by the, an EEG alone. They haven't tried landing it yet, but it's amazing where things would go. And to bring this right back to where we started with Bill Stewart, I just thought I would say a word uh, here. This is a picture uh, of um, Bill Stewart at uh, dinner, uh, and Audrey, his wife, there. That dinner was to celebrate 1,000 lives saved by Martin Baker ejection seats. Many of you may know that the Martin Baker Aircraft Company started off building aircraft, and Valentine Baker was killed in a prototype of their construction. He couldn't escape from the aircraft. Thereafter, Jimmy Martin, Sir James Martin, became fascinated about developing techniques to uh, allow aircrew to escape from a doomed aircraft, and the whole company switched its focus and has maintained that position now. This was a dinner, to, as I say, to celebrate 1,000 seats, 1,000 uh, lives saved by the use of Martin Baker seats. That number is now over 7,600, and Martin Baker are generously providing you with a glass of wine at the end of this. And so, what I would like to say is that I think what we have, I hope we've looked at, is that aerospace medicine has developed, and it's done so on, on the, by uh, the efforts of many individuals involved. We're commemorating Bill Stewart here as, as one of them. We are celebrating um, our pioneers. We recognise the, um, the motto of IAM and CAM equivalent that they may fly safely. Nowadays, they is all of us. Thank you. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.